in his sermon, um, he he's trying to make the distinction between a, a religious righteousness and what true righteousness is. So he tells us that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that is a serious statement. The Pharisees were considered to be the righteous among the people. They were careful to obey the law. They studied it. They memorized it. They based their entire life upon obedience. And yet, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we hear that, we, um, we, we, we think that, you know, well, that means we have to be really, really extra good. We have to be really, really careful to say the right thing, to do the right thing. And, and then if we get even more serious, we start, okay, is this okay to think? Is it okay that I'm feeling this? And we do that in an effort to try to present ourselves before God to say, see, I'm righteous. See, I'm good. See, I'm a good person, God. I'm moral. But the thing is, you can't fake true righteousness before God. You can deceive others. If you're really good, you can even deceive yourself. But God looks through our good behavior. He looks through our self-righteousness and he sees our hearts. Our hearts are where true is where true righteousness lives. Jesus helps us understand this by giving us some examples of what the law says, which they were careful to obey, and then showing us how the law points to true righteousness. So we talked before about anger, hatred. And yeah, it's easy to not murder your brother, but it's hard not to call them foolish. Not to insult them. And Jesus says true righteousness isn't just not murdering. A righteousness from the heart values people and elevates them and considers them and treats them with dignity and honor. So this morning we move on to his next example. You know, we kind of talk about the Bible as it's a, you know, a love letter from, from God, and in a sense it is, but we try to dress it up. And Jesus is extremely raw here. He deals with issues of the heart. There's nothing more beautiful and easily corruptible than human sexuality. This is what he says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body 
go into hell. And this is a tough, tough passage. Out of the gate, let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that if you lust lust after somebody, you might as well go ahead and sleep with them. That is what a carnal person, that's what a, a natural person thinks. That's what a person thinks, well, it makes sense logically. Man, I already lusted after them. I might as well see if they're game. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not making the two equal. Lust and adultery are not the same thing. But they do both come from the same unrighteousness of heart. So let me give you a a definition of lust. Dictionary.com and Merriam-Webster define lust as intense sexual desire. The idea here is strong sexual craving, not the normal attraction. God gave humans sexuality. He's the one who thought it up. It was his idea, and it was good, and it is good. So lust is not the normal sexual yearnings of people. Lust is greater than that. It's different than that. It's not just noticing someone's attraction. It's not just noticing a woman's beauty. It is an intense sexual desire. And I think we can take this understanding and kind of put it into Scripture. The purpose that God has given to humanity for, for our sexuality is two things. One is procreation, right? God could have done anything to have us procreate, but he chose that procreation would be enjoyable and would be good, and he also chose to make it to where it unites people. The physiological happenings in a, in a person, when they engage in sexual activity, has bonding chemicals that go on to where when you engage in sexual activity with somebody, you're actually bonding with them in a very real way. That's the way God intended it to be. So what lust does, lust is desire absent a marital covenant. Lust takes a person and reduces them down to their sexuality. It reduces them down to what they can do for me in a sexual manner. Lust seeks sexual satisfaction for itself, in itself, as a means to an end. It it divorces, so to speak, God's intent for sexuality from its action. It separates it from God's good purposes for sex, as I just mentioned. Nearly all sinful actions that we have towards one another, our attitudes, behavior, words, nearly all sinful actions that we can have towards others revolve around devaluing a person, stripping them of their God-given dignity as a person made in the image of God. And so lust is no different. Lust 
is just devaluing a person regarding their sexuality. That's the only meaning they have to you. Jesus says that if you lust after another, if you reduce them down to their sexuality, if all they are is a physical being, if you objectify them, then your heart is unrighteous. It wasn't, it wasn't hard to not commit adultery. In Jesus' day, among the Jews, adultery was very, very rare. That wasn't a hard thing to do, to stay faithful to your spouse. And indeed, among us, in our culture, it seems um, to be old-fashioned. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't. It was the norm. So for him to bring this up and say, you've heard that it's, it's said, don't commit adultery. I think, well, yeah. And we're right there with him. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good thing. Don't commit adultery. Be faithful to your spouse. But then he says, if you've ever looked at a woman with lustful eyes, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus was trying to get across that righteousness goes deeper than actions. It's not hard to obey a law. But it is hard to keep your heart righteous. True righteousness goes deeper than outward morality. It goes to the heart of our intentions, to our will, to our motivation. Jesus is trying to clear up the idea that you are good because of your action. Your actions are not what make you good. It's the motivations behind your actions that reveal the true state of your heart. You are not clean because your actions are clean. Jesus wants our hearts to be clean as well. So Jesus says that true righteousness, Jesus says that true righteousness will go to great lengths to preserve itself. True righteousness will grow will go to great lengths to preserve itself. In verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your own members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go to hell. We have a hard time with these verses and we often don't know what to do with them. I mean, what does Jesus mean? Well, again, let me tell you what he doesn't mean. If we come here next week and some of you are missing eyes, I know you'll have missed the point. <laughs> if we come in here and you're missing limbs, I'll know you didn't understand. 
He's not saying that if you lust, you should pluck out an eye. Literally. What he is saying is that someone who has been born again, someone who has genuinely placed their faith in Jesus Christ and God has made him a new creation, God has given him a new, clean heart, that that individual will take drastic action to rid themselves of unrighteousness and to protect themselves from unrighteousness. True righteousness takes sin seriously. True righteousness takes sin seriously. We live in a culture that just drinks sin down like water. I mean, even the issues of sexuality are are abhorrent to God. So in a sense, any action we take to preserve righteousness or to live good lives is going to look drastic to the world that we live in because our culture is just so inundated with sin. It welcomes sin. It praises sin. It celebrates sin. But the righteous person will take drastic action to protect the righteous gift that God has given them. So I'm wording it that way on purpose because I don't want it to look like this is what makes somebody righteous. Taking drastic actions against sin is what makes somebody righteous. Rather, the righteous person takes these drastic actions because God has made them righteous. And they value righteousness. They hate sin. They hate evil. And they love what is good. And so they want to protect themselves from sin. So Jesus here, he's talking about taking action against sin that will make life more difficult. That's the point. Gouging out your eye cutting off your hand. Are we willing to rid ourselves from sin to the extent that it's going to cause us a headache? It's going to be an inconvenience. It's going to make life harder. It's going to hurt. True righteousness is willing to do that. And Jesus' followers will be willing to do that. This is all kind of abstract right now. I haven't um, yet brought any application into it. And there are numerous, numerous areas of application. But I'm just going to bring up one. Pornography. It's been 50 years since the beginning of the sexual revolution. And our culture is reeling from it. Our culture is just, may never recover from the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. And unfortunately, the church has yet to figure out how to help the people who've fallen prey to it. And I can say that because I'm one of them. And so are you. 
I live on both sides of the equation. I'll expound on that in just a minute. Let me give you some stats about pornography. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. There are around 42 million porn websites, which totals 370 million pages of porn on the internet. The porn industry's annual revenue is in the tens of billions. 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. That's important. I'm going to say that one again. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. 11 is the average age that a child first is exposed to pornography. 11 years old. By age 14, 94% of children will have seen porn. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them for help with pornography in the past year. 68% of church-going men confess to regular porn use. 50% of pastors admit to regular porn use. Of young Christians, years 18 to 40, or 24, 18 to 24 year old Christians, 76% actively look at porn. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once a month. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. And we live in a culture that doesn't think that porn's a, de- a big deal. That it's just a regular, it's just natural. I'm here to tell you it's not. I am a recovering porn addict. I am a recovering porn addict. Well, Ryan, you're being too hard on yourself. No, I say it that way on purpose. I'm not being hard on myself. And I say I'm a recovering porn addict because an addiction like that never goes away. There's a reason why at AA meetings you can have been sober for 40 years and still introduce yourself, hey, I'm Ryan and I'm an alcoholic. Porn hijacks your brain. It actually changes the neurological connections, just like cocaine addict or heroin. How you define an addiction can be a sobering thing. Dr. Doug Weiss says, when you cannot stop your behavior, when you spend more time or more money on it than you thought you would, when you have been caught or had consequences, but continue anyway, when you have made promises to quit and can't fulfill those promises to yourself, God, your family, your wife, you most likely have an addiction. 
And every single one of those things describes me. Again, I say I'm a recovering porn addict because it doesn't matter how long ago it was. It's always a step away again. I want to share with you my story, not for myself, but to offer you hope, to offer you maybe a sobering moment, I first was exposed to porn in the third grade. I stumbled upon it. I didn't seek it out. It was a scrambled channel of cable TV television. And that combined with some other things that had happened in my life, it was an instant addiction. Anytime my parents left me alone, anytime I was alone in the house, that's what I did. I was in deep, and I was young enough that when you are exposed to any sexual activity before you hit puberty, you open a box that wasn't meant to be opened. I can't tell you how many times I confessed. My parents found out. I confessed to pastors, youth pastors. I confessed to friends. At one point in time, I've counted up, I've confessed to over 150 people to try to get rid of this addiction. Over 150 people. One time it was over 80 at one time. I've seen five counselors. Five. Countless hours and counseling. I have journals that are wrinkled with tears. I got to the point I couldn't cry about it anymore. My heart was so hardened. The guilt and the shame was unbearable. I became suicidal. The, the amount of self-hatred that comes with an addiction is unlike anything else I've ever experienced. See, the difference between guilt and shame is that guilt is objective. I did this, I'm guilty. I know it, I have a feeling of guilt. Shame, on the other hand, is there's something wrong with me. Why can't I stop doing this? Why am I so messed up? Those thoughts became my friends. The deep wound that porn caused in my heart will probably never be fully restored to the side of heaven. And that's not just me being a Debbie Downer or not having enough faith. That's just the reality of consequences. In all of this, the church was helpless. The church was helpless to help me. 
youth pastors didn't know how to respond. Well, get an internet filter and, and read your Bible and pray more. Be more disciplined. Counselors. All counseling did was add to my shame. That I messed up. I am a mess. I'm worthless. I can't change this. There is no hope. And these were Christian counselors. Meant well, had some good things to say, but at the end of the day, it was threats. It was, if you can't change this, if you don't repent, maybe you're not a real Christian. As if I hadn't already thought of that. So the turning point for me was when I came to the realization that it was an addiction. And that an addiction is different than normal sin. I was able to go see a counselor who was for the first time didn't bat an eye when I told him. Wasn't surprised. Didn't look at me differently. Didn't call in to question my salvation. He just knew what it meant to have an addiction. He knew that telling me to read my Bible more and pray more and just cry out to God more, while those sounded really good, those weren't the answer. He could see the love that I had for Jesus. He could see the love that I had for my wife. He could see the love that I had for my kids. And so his, his heart broke. He hurt with me and didn't judge. And he knew that at the root of an addiction is a wound. That's true for all addictions. Because what happens with an addiction is that you go to something. It could be work. Anything that's an addiction. It could be food, let alone drugs and alcohol or sexuality. You're trying to use it as a medication. You self-medicate a hurt that you have. And we all have hurts. We're all broken. And then pretty soon it takes on a life of its own. You realize that I'm not just medicating myself. It, it now rules me. I'm no longer free. I'm no longer in control of myself. This is running my life. And so you have to deal with the hurt. Didn't matter how many times I repented. Didn't how many times I cried. Didn't how many times I read my Bible. Didn't how many didn't matter how many verses I memorized. Didn't matter how many times I went to see a counselor. Until I dealt with the wound that I was using the pornography to medicate, I would always go back to it. Tearing out an eye 
and cutting off your hand may not look like what you think. It may mean, as it did for me, you've got to deal with something deep, dark in your soul that you've been hiding. You may not even know is there. If you have an addiction, there is a wound. How drastic are you willing to get to get rid of it? Last week, I, my, my message for those of you who watched online was about freedom. Something that means a lot more to me now. I don't want to stand here if I can't be free. Free to tell you what's going on in my life. Free to speak God's word. Free to be me. And I don't want you to be here if you can't be free. What are you willing to do to be free? True righteousness takes drastic action. It didn't matter how many filters I had up. It didn't matter how many barriers, how many boundaries, how many friends I told to keep my, to watch my back to see, man, where's Ryan? I wonder what he's doing. He's hiding again. Until I dealt with wounds, I would always go back to it. That being said, just because I've dealt with wounds, I still have filters on everything. I still have an accountability group that I meet with every week. Because I'm always potentially vulnerable. One time is all it takes for me to slip back and the addiction to overtake me again. That's something that I will live with for the rest of my life. And I'm prepared to deal with that. Gouging out eyes and cutting off hands means drastic action. And it means we have to be creative. So let me ask you this. Do you value righteousness to the point where you're willing to deal with hurt? Do you desire God to the point where you're willing, you're willing to make your life more difficult to be righteous? I have a few more comments. First of all, I brought up pornography because that is my story. That may not be your story. Your story may be something completely different. You've got to examine your own heart and to know what is it that I'm holding on to what is it that I'm looking towards to medicate my own hurts? 
It could be something as simple as work or food. It could be anger. It could be success. It could be alcohol. It could be popularity. You've got to be able to examine your own heart to know. To know the state of your heart. But regarding pornography, I want to speak to parents for just a moment. You wouldn't allow your child to have a drawer full of Playboys. So put a filter on all the devices in your house. Put a filter on every single possible way your child might stumble upon pornography. And double check him. Make it a routine to check history. Make it routine to make sure the filter is working. See, I don't just have a filter. (laughs) Every device I have, to the point of my work computer, has a filter on it and an accountability software as well. To where if they're just, it just takes random websites that I go to and emails them to an accountability partner. It can take screenshots of a screen at random and send them to my accountability partner. But it doesn't just stop. Having a filter is not good enough. Have open communication with your children about sexuality. And talk honestly. Use the right words. And don't be afraid of it. There's a story of a tribe in the jungle. There was an alligator that kept eating the children. And the only thing that they knew to do was to lock the children in pens during the night so the alligator wouldn't come and get them. But the alligator was more powerful than the pens. And it came and destroyed them all. You have to deal with it at the source. You can't hide your kids long enough. You can't protect them long enough. You've got to say, this is the world we live in. And give them the tools necessary to live in it. There's no hiding the truth. Don't be afraid of the truth. There's no reason to fear the way God has made humanity. Sexuality is a beautiful thing. It's one of God's greatest gifts to us. And until the church deals honestly, deals honestly with the truth of human sexuality and why God created it and how it points to how he's such a good giver, the world is always going to have a monopoly on sex. And finally, and this, I'm not going to say this is the most important, don't let rules override relationship with your children. Value relationships over rules. Rules 
are important, you have to have rules. And you have to enforce rules. But your child, whether they're two or whether they're 15, is not made to obey rules. God made them to relate. Value your relationship with your child more than the rules you've made for your child. The majority of men and the, the majority of Christian men who have been addicted to pornography grew up in homes that valued rules over relationships. It was rigid behavior. There was no freedom to confess. There was fear of consequences rather than the safety of their parents. The most important thing a parent can do to arm their children to live in this sex-crazed culture we live in is to know what true intimacy means. Because what pornography is, is false intimacy. It's fake love. And you give them a taste of the real thing. Safety, security, freedom, trust. Pornography will taste like dumb to them. Gouging out eyes, lopping off limbs may not look like what you think. Didn't look like what I thought. I thought it meant more filters, more confession, more counseling. In reality, what it meant was healing. It was hard, it was difficult, it is hard, it is difficult, it will be hard, it will be difficult. But that gummit, I hate it. I don't want to be ensnared to filth when my God offers me clean water to drink. And so I'm willing to do what it takes to protect the righteous gift that God has given me. I may just be a jar of clay as a vessel, but he's put a treasure in this and I want to protect it and I want to value it and I want to share it. And I can't do that mired in muck and filth and garbage. The question is, is what do you want? How much do you want freedom? How much do you cherish the righteous gift that God has given you? That is a question each of us must answer in the quietness of our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your gift of mercy and grace. Lord, I thank you that you are really the lover of our souls. You aren't just interested in our actions. You're not just interested in our obedience. You're interested in our whole person. Jesus, I thank you for sharing these words with us. Lord, I pray that we take them to heart. I ask that you would work in a way that only you can to make us whole, to make us yours. Amen. Well, I want to...